0: theme of what we could call interbeing or interdependence. I want to explore that theme. And I was I was reflecting that there really are uh, a number of different ways that we can see our practice, our spiritual lives, the trajectory of our of our spiritual work. And we, we get some of those from Buddhist tradition. You know, we have, we can look at our practice in terms of the four noble truths, the four truths, and see our lives in terms of the question of where is there suffering? How do we understand the roots of our suffering, and how do we transform that suffering to bring about peace and understanding? And we can use that model as a way to to um, see our practice. Or we can look at a a model like the uh, Seven Factors of Awakening or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, which talks about the qualities of an awakened mind and heart. And we can ask ourselves, how might I develop in these qualities? And that model points to aspects of mind and heart, like mindfulness, like joy and energy or effort, inquiry, concentration, equanimity, calm, and so forth. And we can use that model and ask, where am I well-developed? Where might I need further development? And what practices might I use? So that's another model. And we can can also use a model like the, uh, the Eightfold Path, which talks about ways that we might develop a little bit differently from these other models. It talks about generally about a threefold way that we can see our practice in terms of our uh, what would be broadly called our ethical life our our life in the world which in the eightfold path includes our livelihood our speech and our our action in the world and then th- uh, three aspects of the path related to meditation the development of mindfulness and concentration and energy or effort and lastly two two aspects related to wisdom the the development of understanding and clarity of intention and we could we could use that model again to say are there places where i'm uh not giving so much attention where i need to give attention where i might look more you know and many people have uh, something like a model of wholeness as as a a core model for your for your spiritual lives. We might think of a set of um, parts of our lives where we need to give attention. And We might think of our as as the mature spiritual life as a life of wholeness. And so we might look to our um, psychological work that we do, our relational life. Even our our life in the world and livelihood and vocation, our life to contribute to the well-being of the larger world, and we might we might look to that model. And I think what's helpful with each of the models is they can they give us a sense of um, where is their resonance. Where do I feel like I? can grow some. Where where where's the growing edge now? And how does one of these models tell me, oh yes, more joy, <laughs> you know, more joy in my life. Or it's time to get the livelihood thing together. You know, or something like that. And each of these or, you know, I do really good meditation, but once I open my mouth I'm hopeless. <laughs> uh, and so that might, that might point to an area of attention. And the theme I want to explore today, I think, is another model. And it's an, it's an important model or an important way of looking at our practice. And that's a way of looking at our practice as a movement from a kind of uh, self-centeredness in which we have a, a somewhat fixed notion of ourselves in which we feel ourselves somewhat separate and distanced from the world and from others and even from parts of ourselves, we have this more rigid notion of self. And the trajectory of our spiritual lives takes us toward a much wider sense of interdependence. It relaxes some of the fixations of the self— It takes us towards a way of experiencing our being and experiencing the world in which we're not so much a fixed, separate self, you know, sort of opposing the world, but more a permeable node in this vast network of beings and objects that, and that network or that net extends almost uh, inconceivably in time, in space, in various ways, in many dimensions. And, and so it, it takes us from this very fixed notion of here I am, the self, separate from the rest of things, trying to somehow survive and manipulate experience so I have at least a little bit of a good time, <laughs> into this very vast vision of being in this in this tremendous uh tremendously vast and almost inconceivable network of life that we could that we could talk about in terms of interdependence so i want to talk some about that that movement from that more fixed sense of self to the wider we could call it a wider sense of self if we want to a wider sense of uh, what Thich Han calls interbeing. And I want to talk about it really in, in three ways. And each of the three ways, I want to suggest ways of practicing for each of those three uh, areas. And the first, the first area is to talk about that sense of fixed self and what that's like and how to see that more clearly and see where we are fixed and ways to see it in mindfulness practice, in our lives, and to let that go. The second area would be to talk about this wider sense of um, interbeing or interdependence with all beings and all objects and how to cultivate that. And some, some very preliminary practices which can help us move in that direction. And then thirdly, focusing on another aspect of interdependence, which is the way that we, particularly with human beings, we tend to create others. We can call them enemies, difficult people, people for whom suddenly we feel, or not so suddenly, we feel that that, um, rigidity of self because i'm me and they are definitely not me <laughs> right and so i want to i want to give some focus to that uh, as well and in each of these give some sense of, of of sort of glimpses of what this sense of interdependence looks like as we mature and i, I was reflecting that for myself my own i think my own shift towards considering practice more in terms of interdependence, uh, came when I first met Thich Nhat Hanh, actually. And some of you have done retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh. I remember the first one very distinctly. It was about, uh, it it was a little over 15 years ago. I think it was in 1987. And he was giving a, probably, I think, a five, either a five or seven day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And... I had been practicing, uh, especially at that center a lot, doing retreats that are pretty similar to the kind of retreats we do here. Namely, uh, they're actually even a little more focused or rigorous. We would typically, we'd get up about 4.30. It's slacked a bit on the West Coast. Now we get up at 5.30 or 6. (laughs) Uh, We'd get get up at 4.30 and people would often go to bed quite late uh, many people would do very long sittings we 'd be you know total silence for a week or ten days or, or longer. and people I think had a somewhat subtle or hidden pride in how rigorous everything was and how deep one can get and so forth and So Thich Nhat Han came the the sittings were twenty minutes long <laughs> Uh, there were a lot of kids there, so there was no way there was going to be silence, right? There were kids kind of running around a lot, and there were a lot of periods in which people were welcome just to talk with each other. And Thich Nhat Hanh gave uh, two-hour Dharma talks. Sometimes, if I remember right, sometimes twice a day. <laughs> so wasn't that much time for just sitting, you know, if you get the model. And, and I I heard there were some of the old so-called old-timers at at the center were sort of saying, well, this isn't a real retreat, you know, this is kind of, they're kind of, they're just having a good time or something <laughs> <laughs> something like that. And if I remember that that wasn't my experience at all, that uh, someone asked me after the retreat, well, what was it like? And I said, well, it wasn't real big on concentration, but I learned about uh, interdependence. And I learned about that the whole time, and and there was, it was from the teachings and from a lot of different ways. Thich Nhat Han, it was the first time that I experienced Thich Nhat Han doing his leading his meditation where we would hold up, uh, you know, an apple or an orange, and he would he would bring the children up front and he would say, you know, do you see this orange? And the kids would say yes, you know, and do, can you see when you look at the orange? Can you see the can you see the clouds where the orange tree was growing and they would say yes and and can you see the uh you know the farmer watching the trees and making sure they're okay and the kids would say yes and he would go on and on like that and and then they would leave and then he would kind of do the same with the adults <laughs> uh and it felt like there you know for for many days i was just seeing i was First of all we of course we were slowed down and to cultivate interdependence one has to slow down a lot. But I was slowed down and I was really seeing this um I was seeing all the objects as if they were part of the web and my my mind was opening to that and I I was having resonance because I had um I had it reminded me of the times when I had particularly uh uh studied and written a lot of poetry and I I had spent some time at Naropa studying with Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman and, and people like that, and I just remember, we were, you know, we would it was felt like the poetry center of the world, you know, and we had like five poetry readings a week and, and coupled with meditation and, you know, the whole, it was very ambitious, the whole project was to try to have poets and artists who were, who were, who's, whose sign of success was not going crazy. Laughter which you could say that that has been sort of the Western model for a few hundred years, you know that if you 're really a good artist you 're probably incredibly unstable and very unhappy, and it generates all your good art and and people were looking for a different model of that and and so I was really experiencing you know um, almost seeing with poetic eyes and for me, seeing with poetic eyes was um, was looking at the tree and seeing the way it's like my leg or the, the pole or the branch, and just seeing, like, I had the images of shooting metaphors out of my eyes that would, that would, that would have these lines of string or something which would tie things together so I, so I actually would experience, like, the world, like, this vast network of correspondences. And, and being with Thich Nhat Hanh, it was the same thing. You know, it was the same sort of uh, understanding. And another dimension really also brought out that sense of interdependence, because that was that at this retreat, there were about, um, almost half the people there were Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese Americans for the most part, and there were a lot of kids there. And this was, uh, what, 12 years after the Vietnam War ended. And Thich Nhat Hanh talked incredibly, uh, talked a lot about the war when he first was teaching teaching in the 80s, he talked a lot about his experience of the war. He doesn't talk so much about that nowadays. But he talked a lot about it, and it was very, very poignant to be there, hearing him talk. And we had some films where they showed B-52s, you know, raining bombs, and to see to have see those films and have Vietnamese kids running around and a lot of adults. It was it really brought out also another sense of interdependence very strongly. And so for myself, that really made me realize more that the practice wasn 't that there were other ways of seeing the practice it wasn 't all about concentrating and being very present, but that the wisdom dimension was about seeing in a different way, which takes us out of this more self centered way of, of seeing and I was reflecting on on that you know what is that what is the starting point, or what, what, it, what, is the, what, is the, what is it like to experience the separate self, to experience, you know, where, where's our starting point? If we think of looking, using this image of interdependence as a way to describe the journey, as it were, the journey from separate self towards much more of a sense of, of interdependence, what's the starting point look like? And we all carry the starting point to some extent. What, is, what does it feel like to to have a, separate, a very separate self and to experience the world like that? And I think we all do that to some extent. Some of you may know the, the German philosopher Martin Buber. He wrote a book, I think in 1923, it was called I and Thou. And probably many of you read that in, in college or before or after and it was a very simple book. It said that there were two basic ways that we can relate to the world. One way he called the way of, or the, the mode of an I-it connection, or an I, it's, not, it's actually an I-it disconnection. You know, that I can relate to the world as if the world is a series of its, or I can relate to an object as if it's an it. And what he meant by that was that there was, there's, there, first of all, is a sense of very clear separation. I am, I am a being that has purposes, values, maybe inner life, consciousness. I matter. It doesn't. It is there for me, right? It is there for me, and I try to sort of manipulate the world. When I'm in an I-it uh, attitude, and I have an I-it attitude, I manipulate the world in order to have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. And I see other as sort of a means to my end. This is an extreme. I don't think we totally do that, but we, we come pretty close a lot. And maybe it even feels like we do that a lot. You know, I was experiencing... I was caught in bad traffic this morning, which is why I was late. And it's there's nothing like bad traffic to bring out an I-it relationship. <laughs> Uh, it also brought out a sense of interdependence because the I-it is just a struggle, right? It's like, you know, I have to get through, the, these people are just obstacles to me to get to Spirit Rock, right? They're just it, right? And, and won't they just get out of the way and let the waters part and so forth? And, and yet it also could, could bring out, you know, I could, I could get totally locked into that I-it relationship and maybe much of our experience of driving is like that, I don't know. Uh, it can be. But we, it also is a chance to say, "Oh, there's interdependence or I'm part of a flow, and it's going slow." <laughs> uh, but I can I can have a kind of refuge in the in the um, in this traffic and just say, "Oh yes, this is what it's like in the morning at a, on a particularly bad day," you know. And and I think we have that option. You know, when we find ourselves a little bit caught or fixed, we can relax into something larger. But that sense of I-it is it's very strong, and it can be in relation to objects. You know, I can take an object as only an it for me, and that means that uh, I'm mostly concerned about how it serves my needs. You know, and I, I construct the world so that everything, if I'm in that uh, attitude, then I, everything is there sort of to meet my needs or not meet my needs. And I may be, I still may study it, I look at it, but it's somewhat from a distance. I see all the objects from a distance. I may need to study them, find their properties, see their qualities, and so forth, but it's somewhat a distance. It's a little bit like the, the uh, very distanced way that we may study something in order to know more, more about it. Now, what's interesting is we can also have an I-it relationship in, in, um, with other people. That other people can become only means to our end. And we know what it's like to, when we're treated that way, right? When someone else, it's, we, we could say that that I it attitude is a strategic attitude. And we know what it's like when we treat others strategically or when others treat us strategically. You know, we feel pretty much like we've been treated like, like m- my experience doesn't really matter. That's what it's like to be treated as an it. Now, curiously, we can also take that attitude towards ourselves. We can have an an ayat attitude toward ourselves. We can actually manipulate parts of our experience, or even see parts of our experience, through that same lens. And there's this uh, very interesting uh, line that's in one of James Joyce's... uh, short stories, which which I learned from uh, Jack Kornfield, which is uh, in one of the uh, Dubliner stories called A Painful Case, and there's a line uh, where James Joyce describes um, someone named Mr. Duffy, and he says of Mr. Duffy, he lived at a little distance from his body regarding his own acts with doubtful side glances. (laughs) That's the I-it attitude towards oneself. Mr. Duffy lived at a little distance from his body, regarding his own acts with doubtful side glances you know and I could relate to that, I think many of us could that sometimes we you know especially in terms of our uh bodies, I think i was you know a lot of people in this culture, particularly men, are are really raised almost to kind of treat their bodies like machines or something you know and and you know that So I I would say even though I was uh, raised and uh, was an athlete, I didn't have a sense of the sort of living inner experience of my body. It was something that I kind of almost noticed at a distance, a little bit like Mr. Duffy, even though I was very physically fit and so forth. Do you know what I'm getting at here? It's It's very interesting. Now, the Buddha actually had a very similar analysis of the separate self, and we know that the questioning of taking of a separate self as a basis for spiritual practice is right at the center of the Buddha's teachings. That the Buddha talked about the way that we tend to have an idea of being a separate and permanent self, sort of set off against everything else. And what was interesting about the Buddha's treatment of self was that he particularly focused on what we might call the fixations of self, the way that this rigid separate self manifests, in and in particularly in what he would call grasping. And so the emphasis of Buddhist practice is not so much to think about the self, but it's rather to look at the ways in which this separate self manifests through grasping. And he talked about four main ways that, as it were, the self, which he thought is actually a kind of uh, fiction, four main ways in which we uh, tend to grasp with the self. One is through grasping for, for sense, what he called sense pleasures, or trying to, to avoid unpleasant experiences. That's, that's a place where the self suddenly gets really big. And so the, the kind of practice that we're invited to do here, and I talked about uh, suggesting three kinds of practices is in our formal practice and in our daily life, look to where the self starts getting fixated or fixed. And that's a primary place of our practice. You know, in terms of sense pleasures, it might be, try to, just for a moment, when you you think, I must have that ice cream cone. (laughs) Let that be a moment of practice and just say, okay, you'll get the ice cream cone, but do some practice first. (laughs) You know, okay, what's that like? try to feel that sense of the fixed self or, or the, the sense of desire that's linked with the sense of self. Like, if I don't have this ice cream cone, or you could, you know, it could be what? You could, if I don't have X, right? At moments, we're like that. And those moments can be an invitation to practice, to see what that's like. Another main place where we come up against this grasping is, where, is in terms of our views, that we notice that, oh, I have this view, you have that view, of course I'm right and you're wrong. And that's a main place in the analysis of the Buddha where that sense of fixed self manifests. So it's, again, we could have an invitation when you notice yourself really having a very fixed sense of self in relation to views. I'm right, you're wrong, they're wrong. Even President Bush is wrong. If you have a very fixed sense of that, it's good to look at that because there's a very, and we can go and maybe go into that in the uh, questions. Because you would say, well, that's that's just true. <laughs> Some of you may say that, but we can we can explore that particular example. Um, but views are a primary place to look at at this fixed sense of, of self. Another place that the Buddha talked about, the third of the four ways that we grasp, is around what he called rites and rituals, which we could talk about as the way that we grasp after uh, our spiritual practice or even after meditation, the way that we um, form a sense of self around, a medita- around meditation, which can be actually, if you look carefully at it, t- tremendously hilarious. I mean, I, I've laughed a lot at watching myself, you know. I remember, I think I told this story once, but one of the places I laughed the most was when I was instructed by the teacher I, w- I was working with, Christopher Titmus, to on a particular retreat not to do anything. You know, he was kind of trying to balance out the striving aspect of practice and the overly goal-oriented aspect of practice, which a few of us occasionally get into, and some of us uh, more than occasionally. And and so I noticed myself in this uh, when I was doing this retreat. First of all, it was I was just so happy just to not have to do anything. It's such a relief if, you're, if one's a doer, as many of us are, just to actually have permission not to do anything. I was, I was very happy about that. But then I noticed that when I would, that I kind of made the not doing into a doing. And and I also congratulated myself for it. I said, oh, you're, you're, you're really not doing so well. <laughs> and and when, I, when I saw that, there was something that just, <laughs> made me realize how humorous it was, you know that, and the, and I think there's something about our spiritual practice which is like that. That we're actually pointing at letting that fixed self get out of the way, so that we can open up more to our experience and to life. And yet that fixed self wants to claim credit for getting out of the way. <laughs> uh, do you get that? It's it's very, it's very. Um, and of course, it's, it's often not so humorous, but if you look at it in a certain way, it's very, very funny. And it can give all of what we're doing a, um, a tone of comedy, if you, if you, if you look that way. So, so that was the third aspect of grasping. And the fourth aspect of, of grasping is the grasping after self it, itself, so to speak. And so, again, the invitation to practice would be look to where there's grasping after self-image. You know, where do, where do I try to say, okay, look, I did that really well, I hope they give me credit. Where do I look for confirmation? And again, it's not saying that this is wrong or a problem, but it's where that, that self, well, it is a problem, but it's, it's just part of, the, it's part of what we have to explore. But it's looking at where the fixed self manifests in self-image and again the attempt is not to suppress it or repress it or hound it but it's really just to notice it to see where it is that's the mind the, that's the approach of mindfulness and so this is really a first practice that leads towards a sense of interdependence which could which could be said to be bring mindfulness to where the fixed self manifests it's a whole core of our practice now, a second area that we can look at is really, as it were, the, the positive side. If, if, it, if we're being a little more negative or almost de- deconstructive of the self on the one hand, we can also cultivate more a sense of interdependence. We can look into the way that we're actually not so fixed, the way that we're related, the way that we're uh, connected. And we can, do this with, um, we can do this in a variety of ways with, the, with our world. And I think that a lot of what we're invited to do in our practice is to find ways sort of to open up to uh, objects, to living beings, to, to human beings in ways that, that lead us to a sense of interdependence. And I think there, there are actually a few steps and a few dimensions of this I think the first is simply mindfulness. There's something about mindfulness which is a starting point. Just to give attention is to somewhat cut through that sense of fixed self. Because in some ways, the fixed self, when it's relating in that I it mode, doesn't really give sustained attention to the object. Everything's strategic, you know? It's like, nothing really matters. It's just like sort of generic stuff out there to meet our needs, you know. Sort of the extreme version of that, I was thinking, did anyone ever see the film called Repo Man, which is kind of a cult film? Repo means repossession. It's about a bunch of people who re- repossess cars. And it's, a, it's an incredible film. It was one of my favorites in the 1980s. It came from the 1980s. And there is this... Um, there's a scene where the hero, who is an 18-year-old uh, sort of punk rocker who works in a grocery store, where he comes home to his, his family and they're kind of blissfully oblivious to him. Actually, in the movie, they're watching a Christian evangelist and smoking marijuana. <laughs> and, they, and they tell him to go, go get some food and he goes to the pantry... And in the pantry, he takes out a blue and white can, which is just marked food. <laughs> 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 you can see why I like the film. <laughs> I think we do that in some ways with the world. Everything becomes generic, you know, and we don't... And, and so mindfulness is really crucial because it's a giving of attention and it's something very, very basic. And so the first step, I think, towards relating to the world in, in the sense of interdependence is really to, to give attention. It's to, be with, it's to be with a tree, to be with a person, to be with ourselves and not have it sort of be part of a, a strategy, it's to give that free attention. Um, one of my friends named uh, Stephanie Kaza, who some of you know, who used to live in this area, and she, um, she worked a lot with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and she lives in Vermont now, where she teaches uh, environmental studies and women's studies. And she wrote a very beautiful book called The Attentive Heart, which is subtitled Conversations with Trees. And she talked about the sequence of practice... <laughs> to really relate to a tree. And you could say the same thing with, with other beings or other objects. And she said that there actually was something like a five-fold practice that she found in this book. And it's, it's a beautiful book. It's basically, there are 27 chapters related to how she connected with 27 different kinds of trees. And it's a beautiful book. And what, what's interesting about the process is that she said that there really, were, there really were certain stages and she saw her practice as moving in a trajectory from that fixed self to a sense of interdependence. That's what happened as she brought sustained attention to the trees. And I just wanted to read you some of what she, of what she described as these different stages because it brings out some of the qualities of relating to um, cultivating a sense of interdependence by relating to objects. She said, first, there was the simple desire to meet trees and make contact. She did this in various ways. Touching trees, being with books and field guides, responding sensually to trees, just being with the trees sort of in the mode of working with her senses and being with that. And she said, that's very important, and it's, it's a lot of what's done in some environmental education. You learn how to be with trees, you learn some of the qualities and properties. Then she said, the next stage is the process of looking past first impressions, taking time to uncover more complete histories of individual trees. I have found, for example, that trees tell stories of fire, agriculture, and commercial cultivation. As I looked more deeply into my own needs for relationships with trees, I saw how these needs influenced my perceptions of of continuity, community, change, and death. I encountered a greater complexity in reviewing the role of trees as shapers and victims of human activities. Many aspects of what I saw were, were unsettling pointing to the shortcomings of human capacities. And then she went into a third phase, this being with this sense of interdependence, because the way I've talked about it so far, interdependence can be, sounds just very nice, you know, it's, it's kind of a beatific contemplation of the wonders of nature. And she says that actually, no, when you actually go into interdependence, you also find pain, you also find suffering which wouldn't be hard to do if we actually looked into the web of interdependence related to some of the clothes that we're wearing. You know, it wouldn't be very hard to if we looked into the web of the uh, shirt that was made in Guatemala and traced that web. We would have a story that would uh, be somewhat sobering. You know? And I think that's part of interdependence. And I think that's what Stephanie said, that that is part of looking at interdependence as well. She said, I was pressed into a third stage where I entered completely the tangle of human-tree relationships. Trees were no longer simply trees. They carried painful stories of killing, unconsciousness, and objectification. I sat with these faces of suffering, feeling the, the dilemmas of each situation. Answers, solutions, easy plans for fixing the damage were nowhere in sight. The trees exploded into unending waves of despair, greed, and helplessness. I allowed myself to taste the full measure of suffering tied to human tree relationships. I often felt caught in dialogues of time and place that reflected a long history of habits that distance and kill the other. So she was looking very much at both on a personal level and on a cultural level, that sense of the fixed separate self and, and also some of the, the pain that's involved. In the confusion and agony of this experience. I entered a fourth stage, seeking ways to respond that were heartful and genuine, that spoke from the depth of what I saw. I placed, my mind in, I placed my effort in cultivating a stable and attentive mind. I investigated traditional spiritual practices to develop greater capacity in approaching the demanding situation of trees today. Pilgrimage, mindfulness, spiritual inquiry offered powerful ways to be with trees without closing off the suffering. In the last fifth stage of the progression, I found I could no longer act from a simplistic view of trees. Now I was compelled to engage in social action from a context of mutual causality. As a part of spiritual practice at Green Gulch Farm, I joined others in planting trees in the local watershed. We explored the interconnected social and spiritual aspects of ecological restoration work. Questions about relationships with trees took on the vitality of specific place and religious teachings. And she goes on to talk about some of what she did, making pilgrimages, you know, planting trees. So I love that. It's really a very clear sense of a sequence of practice that one can engage in to cultivate a sense of interdependence with a simple a presence as a tree. We could also imagine doing that with a lot of other both living and non-living items, you know. That's, for me, that's very inspiring and very, very innovative in pointing out what this practice of interdependence might look like. And I want to finish by saying that we also can take as a place of practice around cultivating interbeing our relationships, of course, with other human beings, And that one of the best ways for doing that is sort of to continue the theme of the Dharma of Difficult People. It's to say that there's a special place in our practice for looking where we get stuck and fixated and turn other human beings into others. We do this in a variety of ways. You know, we do this when we think, I'm right and you're wrong. Typically, you know, if we look at the way the mind typically works when that happens we tend to have very little ability to feel the presence of the other again the other person seems to become almost like an it with a bad idea <laughs> you know and we we only want you know we would just assume that they would leave the planet at least temporarily and but there's something about starting to notice where that happens where do i find myself making another person into an other. How do I work with that situation? How do I do that around views? How do I find myself uh, forming enemies? You know, whether people I know closely or people that are at a distance. And this becomes, as it were, a third practice to cultivate a sense of interdependence. And it's fascinating, you know, and. I'm sure each of us have stories of how we've worked with this. Because any time that we actually work with a conflict, rather than just say, I'm right, you're wrong, end of story, next. (laughs) When we actually work with that and do this in a relationship, which is what Buber would call more the I-thou type of contact than the I-it type of contact, then we have the potential of cultivating interdependence. So, of course, one of the main ways that we explore this is with people that we care too much about to have them be its for very long. Right? So that's one of the blessings of being close to people, that we get to do that practice. We get to see how we do make its out of others, and we try to work, find ways to work through that. We try to take that almost as a sign that there's some work to do. And so I think I would offer, there's a lot more that we could say about this last area. In fact, it could take many of us lifetimes <laughs> just to explore it and to, to respond to the world. But I think I want to end by offering that th- this third kind of practice as also very vital. It really, in all of the practices, we're really called upon to see where there's a fixed sense of self, a overly tight sense of self, whether it's around any kind of personal grasping in a given situation or around the differences with others that causes us to just see them as opponents or enemies and not to really see that we're much more enmeshed in a larger system of interdependence. You know, to see that actually I probably couldn't be myself unless I have this particular opponent. And again, there's amazing... Ways that we can explore that, whether it's at work in our families and relationships, or in relationship to those presently in in political power. <laughs> and so, I think I would just uh, close with I wanted to just to read something from uh, Shanti Deva, which talks about this last kind of practice as uh, something that's very wonderful that we can actually enjoy having difficult people, opponents, and enemies. Because what? It's an invitation to learn about interdependence. This is what Shanti Davis said. Like treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for that enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. So I think I would invite us all to explore that attitude and to um, explore how best ourselves we can move from that more fixed sense of self to that wider sense of interdependence. Thank you. Any reflections or comments or questions? I mean, one thing that I was interested in was I'm I'm sure that um, many or most of us do varieties of these practices in everyday life. And I would be interested to hear your own variants of how you work to see the fixed self, to work through grasping, to work with enemies or people with whom there's um, a difference. So if, if anyone would like to talk about that, that would be welcome, as well as just any comments or questions. In the with the other so, so that is a key. I think that... In some way, the sense of um, I and it, or whether it's with a, a tree or a person, is is, a, is almost like a, um, a mental or conceptual construction, not always very conscious. And to cut through that, sometimes, we, often, we need to... Uh, not so much think about the right and wrong or stay with that level, but go to the dimension of the suffering, certainly with other people, that that becomes the vehicle. But it's not so easy, you know. It's not even so easy just to feel the suffering of um, a difficult uh, time in a relationship, right? Because for many of us, we just stay with the I'm right, you're wrong way of thinking. So, So... I think what you 're pointing to is that this is actually an important part of the practice to get to that sense of interdependence, and this was what Stephanie Casa was suggesting in the uh, place in the, in the uh, talking about the stages of working with trees that being able to access the suffering is key and it 's one of the um, abilities which we cultivate in this practice. not everyone out there on the street, if you told them well, just be aware of your suffering, and that's a way to come to compassion. And they'll say, what? Or, I don't want to be aware of my suffering. Life is good. Or something like that. So it's that access to the suffering which is really key here, to be able, when it's there, to actually feel it. And, And I think we all know it's remarkable how much that simple act of attention to suffering does bring about compassion for ourselves and then for others. And when there's compassion, it's it's very hard to um, have an I-it uh, attitude, isn't it? Please, yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's the it's just the simple act of attention, which which takes some silence, some some clarity about stopping the rush of the force of habit and moment, the momentum of the situation. And it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, you know, breathing. But if you're in an interaction, the other person has an interest also in keeping everything going. <laughs> right? So it's, it takes a lot of courage to, to actually say, you know, it's actually like we're saying to ourselves, I think I will be best off if I don't keep this whole thing going and actually use some mindfulness and use what I know best. And how many in how many situations do we is that too much for us to do? Yeah, please. That's right, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it's a great it's a great point. I think I'm sure uh most people here could relate to that. It's that we one of the ways we get tricked, and you could think of this in terms of those four forms of grasping that I talked about earlier. You know, the particularly the grasping after views and the grasping after um maybe after the rites and rituals or the spiritual activities, that grasping after views includes the potential to grasp after spiritual views it's not like when you grasp after a spiritual view, it's not grasping <laughs> and, and, and so it's, uh, and of course we know that um, you know, spiritual views provide heavy ammunition during a conflict <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whether it 's interpersonal or in the world right I mean sadly, sadly so, and so what what I hear you saying is that sometimes those views actually get in the way yeah. and and that is not, not helpful to the others, and what you 're called to do is to actually to do what the spiritual views say to do, which is to be present the that 's right, we can get attached to those too, yeah. right, and I think that's that 's it's really um, similar to what others were saying. It's really because if we have, an I- if we have ideas or even spiritual views that are suffering, you know, we often say our suffering shouldn't be there. I'm spiritually evolved. I shouldn't suffer in this way. Right? And that's pretty much the same thing you're talking about. So it's just the courage to actually be present with what's happening in the experience without needing to frame it too much. Yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah. Which is probably she probably has a deep sense also of interdependence. You know, that that uh and just of the connection of things I would imagine. Just that, that ability to attend, you know. So so that's another that's another practice that sometimes is done almost you know, for her it may be because of what she perceives as the nearness of death, but that's a practice that people can do at any age. You know, and sometimes I know you may have experienced it, but for me it sometimes arises naturally during retreats that I think this is like my, mo- my last moment on earth, right? This is my last moment, moment after moment. And things, things are very different with that attitude. And it's not so much uh, morbid, but it's almost like it's a very natural um, way of seeing. Um, please, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Compassion for for whom? All of us. No, him. Him. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just for any any of any of people who are, have not been here so long. There is no there is no political line that you have to. Follow to be in spirit rock. Just just, just so we're clear about that. Uh, but there tends there tend not to just tends not to be uh, an equal balance of views on this matter. <laughs> uh, I think what you're pointing to is that it's it's like uh, like you were saying. What, tell me your name again, Carrie. Carrie. That's right. Carrie was saying that. The um, compassion requires. It's very hard for compassion to be there when there's reactivity, and so, and it's very hard to be non-reactive when you have the TV on. It's a practice in itself. You know, can you be have the TV on, be in your body and your heart, and watch what's happening? That's you know I, I actually I don't know if I'm going to do this. I actually had the idea. Diana Winston and I are doing a five-day retreat in September called Meditation in Action, which will to some extent deal with socially engaged Buddhism. And I was thinking of, it's not going to just be sitting, it's going to be interaction. I was thinking maybe of, I haven't talked with Diane about this yet, but I was thinking (laughs) thinking about having no, I guess I did talk about it with her. I was thinking about having maybe one meditation where we've just, you know, maybe sat for half the day and then we uh, do preparations and then we turn on a videotape of the administration and see what (laughs) happens. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to do that, but it occurred to me as a very interesting practice because what happens to us when that happens? Well, if you take a Buddhist view, it will happen. It may be a while. <laughs> no, but, but, but it's helpful because what exactly what you're saying is it helps, to, it helps to cut through the sense of separation. That's what we're talking about. You know, it, it, it sees him as just like us, as a being who is aspiring to do what's right, mm-hmm. who's aspiring towards awakening in his, you know, in his own way. <laughs> and, <laughs> well. and, and the problem comes when we, <laughs> you know, the problem comes when we uh, make that separation. And the separation is really untenable, the separation says, number you know when we we tend to do this first of all, the separation says uh he is not like me, okay he's bad, I'm good, something like that. The separation also you know also says uh that um, um, he has nothing to do with me, in other words, my decisions or my actions don't have anything to do with him being who he is. We tend to say that we tend to think, oh. He's just acting badly and I'm acting morally and nobly. <laughs> and it, it really, it um, doesn't see the way that uh, he's there in some sense because we're there, because we're here, yeah. you know, collectively. Mm-hmm. It doesn't see those connections. It doesn't see the way that we, as it were, are complicit in all the things we um, criticize. Now this doesn't mean that we don't do something, and that it might be very helpful for his own personal awakening to do it out of office. <laughs> that may be the case. <laughs> but so, so here hear, I'm saying so. So what you're to, I think, is really important. It's seeing where there's separation. This is a this is a whole practice in itself. You know, maybe we could maybe we could go more into this because I. Uh, and we could we could go into some of these these areas because I, the the focus would be on practice, and really keeping it grounded in practice. So I was intending to do that next week, so that would continue some of this. And uh, I'll, you know, um, does that sound interesting? Yeah. 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 Please. Glad yeah, you. Thank you. I'll, we'll explore that some next time, and um, I I could really see that that, um, that sort of experience probably just left to feeling very violated mm-hmm. feeling not seen yeah. Yeah. those are really deep for us that's not yeah. trivial mm-hmm. it's it's big stuff for all of us I'm sure so it, it doesn't seem like uh, something that I think I or mo- most of us would see as something small mm-hmm. so, even though it could seem that way yeah so thank you so much for that um, and, and let's let's continue to explore that. We need to fit, uh, come to a close now, but let's let's have that be a kind of segue with next time, because I, and I'll, I'll I wrote down some notes on what you said, and we'll try to try to tie that in. So let's just sit for a minute or so to to close. And letting be present the insights or understandings or intentions that may have been most helpful from the morning, from the sitting, the talk, discussion. And I'd like to offer an invitation if you feel so called, to practice in the next week with one or more of the three forms of uh, practice that I identified. First, really seeing where the self comes in, in terms of grasping at pleasures or pains related to the senses, at views, even at spiritual practices or at at self-image. And secondly, opening up to that interdependent web through mindfulness, perhaps mindfulness of objects, maybe following something like that sequence that Stephanie Kaza talked about. Or thirdly, looking at where we tend to form a kind of rigid self-other divide with people who we have a conflict with or where there's anger or blaming. And just to study what that's like and how we might work with that situation. And so if you'd like to take one of those three or more, often it's good just to do one as a focus for your practice for the next week. Make that intention. And so, as we close, remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others in this great web of beings. We dedicate the fruit of our work today to the benefit and awakening of all beings and the realization of this deep sense of interdependence.